0: Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Episode 2.3, Rise of the Submarines. Hi and welcome to this new post-holiday episode of a History of Submarines podcast. As announced in the last episode, I took a well-deserved holiday heading to the south of France where some eventful parts of history covered in this episode took place. I can warmly recommend adorable compact cities like Montpellier and Aix-en-Provence. Both rife with history, in Aix-en-Provence for instance, you can just wander through a given street and see and touch Roman ornaments. Some 2,000 years of history right there, laid there by a Roman or a Gaul, and you can touch it, people. You can actually touch 2,000 years of history. It's ah, it's magic every time. And I can highly recommend the lush green Dordogne region. And no, I'm not getting any money from the French Tourism Agency. as This is all, you know, this is just me. So with the uh, sunny R&R behind us, it's now full steam ahead in the coming months. Also, being back from holiday and taking a fresh look at all the content laid out before me, I have to admit that maybe I was a little too optimistic. I originally intended for this episode to deal with the period 1870 to 1914, so right until the eve of World War I. Overseeing, however, this gargantuan pile of juicy historical information now, though, I realize that cramming it all into one episode means it would run well beyond one and a half hour. Uh, and since I'm not Dan Carlin, it's probably better to cut this episode into two as well. So, lucky for you, that means even more history of submarines coming your way. Yay! After that, we'll follow episode 2.4, which will be mostly about Jumpy Holland and Simon Lake and what their submarines meant for the world and the future of submarines. It will also include the first stirrings of the submarine as a weapon on its own in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905. Then I'll add another shorter episode about what would actually turn the submarine into the lethal weapon it is today the whitehead torpedo because seriously people without the addition of this weapon you would probably not be listening to this pod that then sets us up nicely for the four episodes of world war one which established the submarine as a weapon that could no longer be ignored i'll cover said world war in four parts After this, we'll dive into the interbellum, the period during which nations all over the world learned Germany's submarine secrets. And of course, after that, it's right on to World War II. This, just so you know, the menu going forward for the coming uh, six months or so. And now that you've probably listened to a good few episodes, this is also the moment where I ask you to please, please rate this podcast on whatever podcast app or platform you're using. And, in fact, if you like it and think that perhaps your friends should take a listen, please do recommend it. It will help me keep this pod afloat. But, so, after all this housekeeping, on with the show. And where are we? Well, we're now entering the period of 1870 to roughly 1900, when all the right ingredients were discovered by several chefs, independently of each other, to concoct the perfect dish. We just left the American Civil War that saw the first submersible bring down an enemy warship in anger, but although the submersible had not proved its mettle in war, the U.S. government was in no mood to keep investing in its navy. Almost as quickly as it expanded its war fleet, it demobilized and cut budgets. Now, in the North, during the Civil War, an inventor named Scoville Merriam, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, established the American Submarine Company in 1863 with the aid of a $15,000 grant he had gotten from the Secretary of War. Around that time, so when down-south submersibles like the Hunley were being built, Merriam thought the federal government was going to finally commission submersibles. Merriam convinced a New Jersey businessman, Oliver Halstead, to also invest in the company, and they built the Intelligent Whale, a spherical submarine that, like many of its predecessors, was based on the old designs of David Bushnell and Robert Fulton. We don't need to stay with the Intelligent Whale too long for a story. Thanks to Halsey's connections and the fact that the government had already sunk a significant wad of cash into the project, the intelligent whale limped on to almost, almost be commissioned into the U.S. Navy. But as some Navy officers had predicted, the submersible failed miserably during its sea trials in 1872. It was moved to the Brooklyn Naval Yard more as a museum piece than anything else. Then it was moved to the Washington Navy Yard and found its final resting place in the Sea Girt Museum in New Jersey in 1999. You can still see it there today. Uh, Fun fact, maybe, well, maybe not fun, more tragic, actually. Halstead never got to witness the submersible fail. He was killed by his wife's ex-lover a year before the final trials. As said, and aside from the Navy dabbling in the intelligent whale for a while, government interest in submarines, and in fact anything naval, waned. If anything, the failure of the intelligent whale took the wind out of the submarine movement in Washington, D.C., no, the action would yet again be on the other side of the Atlantic, although we get back to the American side of things in episode 2.4. So, let's get a lay of the land, or the seas, if you will. So, the American Civil War had ended, and the U.S. government was demobilizing fast. In Europe, though, submarine development was picking up, mainly thanks to French government interest and people like the Spaniard Narcisse Montréal in Barcelona, We mentioned his first submersible, the 1801. one in the previous episode, but it was the Ictineo II that broke new ground. The Ictineo I, remember, was constructed by the socialist-pacifist Montreal to help coral divers. The submersible was destroyed in an accident while docked. The Ictineo II looked a lot like its predecessor, a double hull with the outer hull made of wood, a small conning tower and working tanks but twice the size in length. In 1864, so in the year when the Hunley sank the Housatonic, the Ictineo II, put to sea and proved success. Monturio was not satisfied, though. He disliked the slow manual propulsion and loathed the fact that bad seas could bring the submersible to a halt when on the surface. He wanted to speed things up. And so he set to work to replace manual propulsion with something new that would provide more speed. Mechanical propulsion, like surface ships all over, were now using of course, Montréal wasn't the first to try it. The French plongeur, after all, of which we spoke in the previous episode, had tried propulsion using compressed air. Other inventors and designers had tried it. That was the Rotterdam boat of old, of course. The designers of the CSS Huntley at first also wanted to use means of mechanical propulsion, and the German submersible designer Wilhelm Bauer, we talked about him earlier as well, had actually tried to sell governments on new versions of a Sea Devil using various ways of mechanical propulsion. Steam engines featured prominently in many designs. This was, of course, only logical. The surface ships of the day quickly saw their sails replaced by steam engines, which meant for faster speeds, and above all, those ships could operate independently of wind. Skippers were no longer at the mercy of the elements, so steam engines held promise. But having a large hot steam engine that depended on a huge cache of coal on on a big surface ship in the open air was quite different from having a large hot steam engine with a large cache of coal inside a small submersible with limited air that would sail below water. Monturiel quickly realized that a steam engine on board a submersible was a non-starter. There was the coal problem, of course. There had been some inventors who seriously entertained the idea of having a coal tug accompany a submersible on the surface, which kind of defeats the main purpose of the submersible, stealth. But more importantly, a steam engine requires a big fire to be lit. That creates two new and, well, insurmountable big problems. First, fire consumes a lot of air very quickly. Second, it produces a lot of carbon dioxide, which made submersibles uninhabitable. Yes, this could be overcome by adding a chimney, or perhaps an underwater exhaust, but this also flew in the face of stealth. The chimney problem is obvious, and a lot of bubbles rising up to the surface is a dead giveaway. And third, of course, a steam engine, by its very nature, produces a lot of unbearable heat. Even if you would only use a chimney temporarily to replenish air, the heat would turn a submersible into an oven. But Monturiel refused to give in and put his brilliant mind to work. He studied the problem, read everything he could uh, get his hands on, and then, without knowing it, laid the groundwork for what in future would be a new holy grail of submarine propulsion, air-independent propulsion, or AIP. Monturiel realized that a chemical furnace fed with a combination of potassium chlorate, zinc, and manganese dioxide reacting to each other would not only generate sufficient heat to bring water to a boil in the controlled environment— the essential ingredient for creating steam, but that a side effect of this process would also produce oxygen. In this way, Monturiol perfected the idea of Cornelis Drebbel, who also used a chemical reaction to produce oxygen. With this propulsion system in place, the ictaneo was able to improve its speed up to 4.5 knots per hour on the surface, a huge improvement on the one or perhaps two knots using manual propulsion. So now we're in 1867, and Monturiol had built the first air-independent propulsion submersible. To give you an idea of how revolutionary this was, first off, the general idea of using chemical reaction would be used to drive torpedoes, the next big thing in submarine development, which we'll get to in episode 2.5. Second, it would take until the 1940s until it was again used in submarine propulsion. Third, only now, so these days, since the 1990s, are new submarines around the world using air independent propulsion, or AIP. We'll get to all this in later episodes, don't worry. But in the meantime, yeah, definitely tip your hat to that Spanish genius, Narcís Montreal. The 1802 could stay submerged for eight hours and dive to a depth of 50 meters, quite feet in those days. Like I said in the previous episode, Montreal was a socialist revolutionary and a pacifist. All he ever wanted to do was for his submersibles to help coral divers and other people trying to make a living off the seabed. The Ictaneo II was fitted with a mechanical arm to aid this, but he could never monetize the submersible. Monturiol had taken out loans from a local businessman, but with no revenue forthcoming, he realized the end was at hand. Monturiol even set aside his staunch pacifism and proposed fitting a cannon to the Ictaneo in a desperate attempt to seduce the navy into investing and pay off his debts. But even if the navy was interested, the Spanish crown was in severe financial troubles and the idea was turned down. With all his options now exhausted, Monturiel's main creditor called in his debts and claimed the submersible to sell it for scrap. Monturiel then gave up his submersible adventures, moved into politics in the First Spanish Republic, and died in 1885. Spain did later realize his genius, though. Replicas were made of his Ixaneo submersibles in Barcelona, you can still see them, There are statues of him, and a new submarine named after him is being commissioned. In the twist of irony, this submarine will be the first in the Spanish Navy to have air-independent propulsion. Nasties Montréal, remember his name. Meanwhile, a lot of innovation was happening up north. Some 50 years after Napoleon Bonaparte's navy was bested by the Royal Navy, France was still playing second fiddle to Britain. We've already discussed the plongeur, that big submersible, propulsed by compressed air, which was turned into a water tank. Earlier, one Olivier Rieu broke new ground by being the first innovator to try a new technology for propulsion, electric engines. Yet another very important piece of the submarine puzzle. After first dabbling in steam propulsion using burning ether for heat, Rieu installed batteries into a model submersible. Unfortunately, that's all we know, that he built two models. There are no records that I could find of trials. Although the British Admiralty was interested in submersibles, that didn't mean that no one in the Isles was dabbling in it. One George Garrett of Manchester was, like Narcisse Montreal, an interesting character. Although Garrett studied to become a clergyman in the English church, he always remained interested in engineering and science. He designed the Resurgum submersible. We'll get to the tech specs in a second, but what's interesting about the resurgum was that Garrett was trying to design a response to some of the defensive measures navies were taking to protect their service fleets after the sinking of the Housatonic, so measures against submersibles. The first and second resurgum submersibles he designed and built were spherical in shape, but the front tip was very pointy, leading wider into the bow. The idea was that these submersibles would be used to tear through steel nets that navies were employing to cordon off harbors or as protection around surface ships against submersible attack. The first misurgen was a prototype model. The second was the real deal. 14 meters or 45 feet long, 3 meters or 10 feet in diameter, a displacement of 30 tons and a crew of 3, and hydroplanes on the side at the center of the submersible. The addition of hydroplanes, in essence, was a good idea, as inventors started to realize that stability underwater was obviously essential. But as later submarine designers would found out, to their sometimes fatal detriment, hydroplanes located at the center of a submersible would still not provide enough horizontal stability. Not at all, in fact. Propulsion was mechanical, although not very practical, using a traditional steam boiler fired by coal. Resurgam would sail on the surface, attaining heat, and then submerge for a maximum of four hours, using the residual heat to boil water and create steam. A nasty side effect, of course, was that submerged, life aboard the Resurgam was almost unbearable. Before Garrett could sell the British government on the Resurgam, it sank during an accident and was never recovered. But Garrett's exploits did attract the attention of Swedish military entrepreneur Thorsten Nordenfelt, famed for owning the patent to what was called the Nordenfeld multi-barrel machine gun. Famed for his machine gun but interested in developing submarines, Nordenfeld teamed up with Garrett and together they designed a submersible named the Nordenfeld One in 1884. It was a prototype submarine that incorporated Garrett's residual heat steam engine, a glass dome on top of a tube like a kind of predecessor of the periscope, a steam engine chimney, a machine gun on deck, also novelty and one that would stick for decades to come, and external torpedo tubes to fire the new whitehead torpedoes. A novelty was that the Nordenfeldt would use vertical propellers to submerge, so these propellers would literally push the submersible down. The submersible had positive buoyancy, which means that its default position was to rise to the surface. Instead of balanced tanks, the Nordenfeldt would use the vertical propellers and the screw on the back of the submarine to push it below water on an even keel. A shrewd businessman, Nordenfeldt was able to sell the submersible to the Greek government, which by that time was arming up quickly to stand up to their arch-nemesis and former occupier, the Ottoman Empire, to the east. The Turks learned of the Greek purchase of the submersible, prompting them to ask Nordenfelt not for one, but two, for the next iteration, the Nordenfelt II and three. The Nordenfelt I, now in Greek possession, had been a relatively small affair, only 19.5 meters, or 64 feet long, and with a displacement of 55 to 60 tons. It really was an upgraded version of resurgam. The Nordenfeld II was larger, with a five-man crew, 30 meters or 100 feet long, and 176 tons of displacement. The submersibles were shipped to a Turkish wharf in parts, assembled and named the Abdul Hamid and Abdul Mesid. As the Turks were welding their Nordenfelds together, the Greeks had taken possession of the Nordenfeld I and started conducting trials, and they did not go well. Unbeknownst to the Turks, the Greeks were discovering that they'd sort of bought a cat in the bag. Because the Nordenfelt looked good on paper, but like the Resurgam, they suffered from major balance flaws when submerged. Like the Greeks, the Turks soon discovered this when they started their sea trials with the Abdul Hamid before being commissioned. Basically, the thing to do with Nordenfelt's was for everyone inside to stay put when submerged. This was, of course, impossible crew members had tasks to perform. On the first trial, one crew member walked to the fore and immediately the submersible tipped over, resulting in everyone falling forward, followed by anything that wasn't stowed or bolted somehow. Submarine chronicler Farnham Bishop described the first trials of the Abu Hamid vividly, Quote, the hot water and the boilers and the cold water and the ballast tanks ran downhill, increasing the slant still further. English engineers, Turkish sailors, monkey wrenches, hot ashes, white-haired torpedoes and all the movables came tumbling after till the submarine was nearly standing on her head with everything inside packed into the bow like toys in the toe of a Christmas socking. The little vertical propellers pushed and pulled and the crew clawed their way aft till suddenly up came her head, down went her tail and everything went gurgling and clattering down to the other end. Norden felt too was a perpetual seesaw and no mortal power could keep her on an even keel." Unquote. And uh, I can't, just for the record, recommend Farnham Bishop's books enough. They are uh, riddled with sarcastic gems like these. During another trial, the Abdul Hamid fired its first whitehead torpedo, which was, of course, done under great pressure from the torpedo tube. The recoil caused the Abdul Hamid to flip back and sink stern first in a 45-degree angle. To counter this, the crew gave full throttle ahead. and The Nordenfeld finally roared forward to come crashing through the surface and smashing a great wash of white water, with the Navy leadership looking on. The brass liked what they saw, but the Turkish testing crew had had enough. The Turkish Navy commissioned the Abdul Hamid, but were unable to find a crew to sail her. Her sister ship, the Abdul Masid, was never fully assembled, and the Abdul Hamid was left to rust away in port. In Greece, the Nordenfeld One was unceremoniously scrapped in 1901. But before they were to learn of the Greek and Turkish misfortunes, the Russians were impressed by Nordenfeld's sail submarines. The Swede then sold them the Nordenfeld IV. Where the Nordenfeld I, II, and III were cigar-shaped, so pointy, four-and-aft, the IV looked more like submarines as we know them today, and certainly like our Russian submarines would look for decades, with a knife bow and stern that also housed the Nordenfeld's signature vertical propellers. The Nordenfeld IV still had steam engine propulsion, so it was still incredibly hot inside when submerged, but it was also one of the biggest submersibles to date. Measuring thirty eight meters or one hundred and twenty five feet in length, a displacement of two hundred and forty-five tons, a maximum service speed of sixteen nuts, and a crew of nine. It was built in England and was then to be towed to Russia via the Baltic, but she sank while under tow in bad weather off the Danish Jutland coast in eighteen eighty-eight. Thorsten Nordenfeld then lost interest in submersibles and George Garrett emigrated to the United States. The Russians switched attention to Simon Lake's submarines, but more about that in the next episode. Because before we dive into the men who would become the Bill Gates and Steve Jobs of submersibles and submarines, there are still some pieces of the puzzle we need to get sorted. While the issue of arming submersibles with a practical weapon had been solved with the Whitehead torpedo, issues with trim and balance clearly remained, as the case with the Nordenfels proved. Discussions between inventors concerning what kind of diving planes and diving methods were best would continue well into the 20th century. There was consensus about the use of a double hull for deep diving, so-called blue water submersibles, or boats that would move well beyond the coasts, and brown water coastal submersibles that wouldn't dive as deep and therefore did not need a double hull to deal with water pressure. Air reserves and oxygen renewal were slowly but surely improving thanks to compressed air tanks and scrubbers. Now, at around the mid-1880s, what really remained was finding the right propulsion mix. As said, there had been some experiments with engines other than steam. What was clear to many inventors was that one-means propulsion probably would not suffice, but still the Holy Grail eluded them. Yes, inventors kicked around the idea of electric propulsion, but the problem is that they run on batteries. And what happens when batteries run out? That severely limits your range. And it's not unlike the ongoing discussion and development we have with electric cars today. How do you recharge them? It's not like there are charging stations at sea unless you assign ships for that purpose, but that would be a telltale sign of the presence of a submersible to the enemy. Of course, there have been ideas about drill propulsion ever since Robert Fulton hoisted a sail on his Nautilus for service manoeuvres and manual propulsion when submerged. We're now in the mid-1880s, and the first petroleum or gasoline engines are on the market. They're smaller and clearly less of a bother than steam engines, but petroleum engines brought with them new dangers. The engines were unreliable and prone to breakdowns. Petroleum was very flammable, and also the fumes could easily kill in the closed-air environment. Reliable diesel engines were still some 10 years in the future. So, after steam propulsion, for some years, submarine inventors looked to electric propulsion. In 1886, Frenchman Claude Joubet was the first to install electric engines into two small submarines, with which he made a number of successful test runs. The electric engines worked like a charm, but like so many submersibles, balanced trim was a challenge. It was impossible to keep the boats on an even keel, and the French Navy lost interest. Nevertheless, Joubet's idea for electric propulsion inspired another Frenchman pivotal in our history of submarines. We'll meet him a bit later in this episode. Because first, we return to Spain, where, after Narcisse Monturriol, yet another smart Spanish inventor moved the goalpost for submarine development yet again. Don Isaac Peral y Caballero was a lieutenant in the Spanish Navy, came up with the idea for a new kind of submersible. Qualitatively, the Isaac Peral submarine, yes, named after him, because why not was the true precursor to the submersibles of the 1890s, early 1900s, and some say even the submarines of World War I. The Isaac Peral was a true next step in submarine design. You can visit it today in the Naval Museum in Cartagena, Spain, and when you approach it, you'll see it. It looks marvelous, and it doesn't take much imagination to picture it taking part in, well, let's say a World War I battle. She was 22 meters, or some 70 feet long, had a beam of 3 meters, or a little over 9.5 feet, and a displacement of some 70 tons. More importantly, Perel fitted her with not one, but two electric engines, allowing for the first submersible with two screws. This also made the Perel the fastest submersible in the world at the time, with close to almost 8 knots per hour submerged. The engines also drove an air scrubber, allowing for CO2 to be removed, and she had an internal torpedo tube housing a whitehead torpedo. The Perel successfully conducted a torpedo attack on a practice target. Unfortunately, the Perel also had some balance and roll issues. Roll is when a ship or submarine literally rolls left to right, or I should say port and starboard, of course, due to wind on the surface or due to currents. The long, cigar-shaped Peral was troubled by this even more so than a service vessel. With the two electrical engines and associated batteries, the Peral submersible had an effective range of some 400 miles at 3.5 knots on the surface. Its designer, Isaac Peral, had had some luck in that, that, about the time he sent his designs to the Navy's brass, a war scare with Germany had Spain in its thrall. The Peral submersible was accepted by the Spanish Navy, but not officially commissioned by the Spanish government. The story goes that the Secretary of the Navy, who was supportive of Isaac Peral, was replaced by another guy who wanted his son promoted to a position which had ostensibly been promised to Isaac Peral. And so the new secretary of the Navy appointed some friends to write a damning report about the Perel submersible taking her out of contention for an official commission. She was scrapped off the Navy's official ledgers in 1890, only a year after concluding her successful trials. Perel moved to Madrid, made some fame, dabbling in electrical power stations for the state, and then died of complications of a brain tumor in 1895. But make no mistake, like his countryman Narcisse Montreux, Isaac Perali Caballero was the second Spaniard to raise the stakes. And so, after this second spin on the Iberian Peninsula, we now turn north for the last time this episode and visit France again, before we spin back to the United States. Where things were happening, that would narrow down even further submarine design, up to the point where only a few loose strings needed to be tied up to turn it into the kind of submarine as we know it today. A man named Henri Dupuy de Lhomme picked up where the Plongeur and the Joubet submarines had left off. This was no coincidence. At around the same time, Dupuy Delon came back to France from a long-stay in Great Britain. Another man was making a name for himself in the French Admiralty, government circles and the press. Vice-Admiral Théophile Aube was a strategist who, like most French Navy officers, pondered how France would ever be able to measure up against the British Royal Navy. One thing he did not believe in was building what he called Mastodon, a large fleet of large ships like the British had in which they were now modernizing with large steel battleships. France could never hope to compete with the British and beat them on the high seas. Instead, Aub argued, the French should use agile ships for quick attacks and pounce on Britain's main weakness, the fact that it is an island nation and thus vulnerable to supply issues. One such agile boat, Aub argued, was cheap torpedo boats, using the new invention whitehead torpedoes to quickly strike at slow-moving enemy hulks. It was Aube, stationed in the main southern navy harbour city of Toulon in the south of France, and who had taken notice of these boat submersibles, who commissioned a design for an underwater torpedo vessel from Henri Dupuis de Lomme. While in Britain, Dupuis de Lomme had learned a great deal about iron and metal hulls and steam engines, and back in France, working for the arsenal in the navy harbour of Toulon, he designed the nation's first ship of the line, with steam engine and screw and iron clads. But he had also taken notes of the antics of the Plongeur, that big submersible with compressed air propulsion and the Joubet submarines. And so Dupuis Delhomme went to work on designing what would later become the Ginot, a futuristic-looking submersible that from the outside looked like a smooth speedboat with a cover on it. Unfortunately, Dupuis Delhomme died before he could finish his work. Later on, Gustave Zedé, a pupil of his, and Arthur Krebs, also a pretty famous inventor and designer of military vehicles, picked up where Delhomme left off and completed the Gimnotes. She would be a testing platform. She was almost 8 meters or 60 feet long, had a diameter of close to 2 meters or 6 feet, housed a crew of 5, had a surprisingly light engine, an electric one of 55 horsepower for propulsion, three hydroplanes for balance, an optical tube, basically a prototype periscope, and the first electric gyrocompass. It also carried two torpedoes. The lightweight of the electric engine designed by Kribbs is probably explained by the fact that Kribs had been designing airships, which by definition can carry only lightweight machinery. So, in almost every respect, the Gimnot ticked off the list of ingredients for a proper submersible. Unfortunately, like the Nordenfels, the Gimnot didn't solve both the underwater stability issue and the range problem. The Gimnot could make a decent speed of about 8 knots surfaced and close to 5 knots submerged, but its range was 70 miles, maximum. That made it a coastal submersible for defense purposes only, at best. Like said, Admiral Aube was liked by the French press, for he never minced words. The British government even filed an official protest with Paris after the French press reported about a strategy piece Aube had written, in which he suggested bombarding British cities into ruins to keep the Royal Navy occupied and damage the British economy. As a result of the fawning press, reports about the gymnotes were glowing, even though test dives did not go so smoothly. Like the men in the Norden felt, the crew and visitors of the Gimnot often found themselves grabbing onto anything that could hold them while the Gimnot keeled over 30 degrees or more. The Gimnot was an unarmed test boat. Next up came the Gustave Zedé, named after its main designer, which would be bigger and hold an internal torpedo tube. Originally, the boat was to be called the Sirene, but like with Dupuis de Zedé passed away during construction, leading the navy to name her after her main designer. The hull was laid down in 1890 and construction finished in 1893. The Gustave Zede was a much larger boat than the g some 159 feet or almost 50 meters long, a beam of 12 feet or 3.5 meters and a displacement of 266 tons. She held a crew of 19 and 3 whitehead torpedoes. And she held the distinction of being the first submersible to be officially commissioned into the navy by a government. Now, I can imagine you going all, wait, what's that? Hang on, hang on. The Hunley, the intelligent whale, weren't they commissioned? Yeah, I admit there's still some debate among purists, but technically the CSS Hunley was seized by the Confederate government, not commissioned. And anyway, the Confederate government was never recognized as an official government anyway by anyone. And the intelligent whale was never commissioned as a sea-going affair. Remember, she was put in a museum. The Gustave Cede was a formidable submersible. If you look up photos of her, widely available on the net, you'll see that she really was a precursor to the submarines of World War I and II in most respects, in both design and specifications. She was longer, for instance, than the German type U-1 submarines, which were launched in 1906, while the Gustav ZD was put to sea in 1893. She was also way ahead of the Holland-type submarines, which we'll talk about in our next episode. This is not to say that the Gustav ZD was without problems. First, of course, having only electric engines limited her range to 200 miles on the surface and some hundred submerged. On her first test voyage, some of the 720 fuel cells burst into fire. The number of batteries was halved, cutting her speed to 5.5 knots on the surface and 4.5 knots submerged. When that problem was solved, it turned out the early fuel cells were unhealthy for the crew. The batteries were highly chemical affairs, releasing fumes into the close environment, frequently causing crewmen to fall ill. And like the Zymnot and all the submarines we've talked about before, the Gustav today suffered from, you guessed it, balance and temp problems. She had rudders at a stern, but this was clearly not enough. There was a close call for the submersible's future during one of her first test dives. An important committee of engineers had come along for the ride to report on her when the same thing happened as with the Nordenfeld Abdul Hamid submersible. She keeled over forward, causing everything and everyone inside to slide to the fore. As Farnham Bishop recorded in his book, quote, At first, nothing would induce the Gustave Zedet to quit the service, and when at last she did plunge, she did it so effectually that she went down to the bottom in 10 fathoms of water at an angle of 30 degrees. Promises for balance improvement were made, adding rudders to her fore, which took care of many bonds and trim issues. After a number of further testing and improvements, the Gustave Zedet sailed from Toulon to Marseille, some 40 miles to the west, and arrived with enough juice in her batteries to make the return trip. By this time, it must be said, the patriotic French press was going absolutely bonkers. Reporters had clearly fallen in love with the new naval marvel. Influential newspapers published glowing articles and rave reviews of the Gustave Sede. This turned into a frenzy in 1898, when it was reported that the Gustave Sede had successfully taken part in exercises that saw her quotation marks sink the Magenta, an aging battleship using Dud torpedoes. The Gustave Zédé had made the 40-mile trip to the exercise area and then twice attacked the Magenta, first when she was at anchor and the second time when she had left port. This was the first time in history that a submarine had successfully torpedoed a warship while submerged. The somewhat embellished newspaper reports culminated in a national drive to collect sums to build more submarines. We can never have enough submarines, wrote a reporter. Another newspaper commented that now that France had these submarines, it could take on any nation with a big navy. It was lost to no one which nation that would be. Submarine fever now held the nation in its grip, and the country needed some positive news. France had been defeated in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 1871, which had seen Prussian troops march through Paris in the region of Alsace and part of Lorraine in the northeast of France, annexed by what was now Germany, severely bruising French pride. Soon after the launch of the Gustave Zide, another submersible was ordered, the Morse, with many of the same characteristics, only smaller. Trials with the Morse convinced navy officers and engineers that something had to be done to somehow create a second propulsion system aside of batteries. Yet, with gasoline engines still being problematic, a solution wasn't readily at hand. It would take an Irish-American inventor over in the United States to solve it. In the meantime, the French attempted to solve the problem by approving the construction of the Narval, which was neither a submersible nor a submarine. It was supposed to be a combination of a surface torpedo boat and a submarine. It had dual propulsion, so electric engine, and still the steam engine for service propulsion, fired by liquid fuel. Although the Naval was another advancement in design in many respects, diving it took a long time. As the steam engine's chimney had to be folded down, the steam engine had to cool off first, and vapors had to be expunged before the Naval could dive. In 1899, the Gustave Sede chalked up another score, after she repeated her feat of a year before, attacking another battleship with a dud torpedo. This time, the French government minister for the Navy was on board, as were some journalists. Newspaper reports of the time described that the Gustave Cédé had been spotted before her attack. Although the submersible had a prototype periscope on board, it wasn't sufficient to gauge proper distance, and so the submersible momentarily broke through the surface like a perpoise, only to immediately dive again. Sometime later, a loud thud rang through the battleship's hull, announcing that the Dutch torpedo had struck home. The newspaper drive mentioned earlier to collect public money from new submarines and push to force the government to commit funds worked. A whole new class of submersibles was designed, the Farfadet class, with construction starting in 1899 consisting of four submersibles. The hulls for two sister submarines of the Morse, the Français and the Algérien, were laid down in 1900. At this time, France was clearly in the vanguard of submarine invention and implementation. In 1901, the French government appropriated funds for yet another new class, the PEL class, consisting of no fewer than 20 submersibles. No other nation was at that time putting so much time and effort and money into submarines. In Germany, some Navy officers were only just starting to take notice and starting to steal and copy designs. On the other end of the English Channel, the British Lion looked on with only a slight concern, while Italy and Russia were starting to take a serious look at submarines after the widely reported escapades of the Gustave Zede. And yet. The French may have been in the lead. The real trigger that would get the entire world and even the British seriously interested in submarines was pulled in the United States. More about that in our next episode, aptly called John and Simon. And so this is it for this episode, in which we followed our course from 1870 to 1900 and found that the submarine puzzle is almost finished. As said at the top of this episode, if you like this podcast about submarine history, please rate it and tell your friends about it. The next episode drops in two weeks. Bye now.